This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and center. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. So it feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioral challenges from the pandemic could linger for years on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, welcome. Friday the 5th of August. I'm Guy Johnson. Uh, we are nearly there. The week, end of the week is nearly upon us. We have plenty to talk about over the next hour. A packed cable show coming up for you. Uh, in terms of the main focus today, it is basically that sizzling US jobs data that came out a little bit earlier on that is making the case for bigger Fed increases that is certainly the focus for the markets. We'll talk about that. We'll compare and contrast as well the picture here in the UK and in Europe for what we're seeing over in the United States. Yesterday, the Bank of England out with a dismal outlook for the UK. The picture on the continent, not much better or potentially even worse. Yet we have this amazingly strong economy over in the United States right now, judging by today's payroll number. So we're going to dig into that, figure out what is happening. Uh, in terms of what we're seeing with markets right now, uh, I'm surprised. We don't have a bigger response to the downside stateside for equities. We saw a big leg lower first thing, then a rise and now we're fading again. We've got the Nasdaq down by 1.21%, but over the last week, it is still in positive territory, which is absolutely fascinating. The expectation after such a big jobs beat today will be that equity markets will be hit hard, and it will be the tech stocks that we hit the hardest. Fairly muted move lower today, and as I say, we are up on the week. We'll come through, we'll talk markets throughout the show, we'll work our way through what is happening on both sides of the Atlantic from an economic front point of view, and from a political point of view as well. We really need to focus on what is happening with that Tory leadership race. We'll come back. We'll do that in just a moment. Here first, though, with the headlines, Charlie Pell. Hi, thank you very much. And here's what's going on, Guy Johnson. Almost 2,000 dock workers at Britain's biggest container ship port of Felixstowe plan to strike for eight days later this month after failing to reach a pay deal, threatening to sever one of the UK's most important trade routes. The uh, Unite Union uh, says workers will strike from August 21st to 29th. Talks failed after the port, owned by a unit of C.K. Hutchinson Holdings did not improve its offer of a 7% pay increase, this according to the union. Rishi Sunak is facing widespread criticism after a video emerged of the Conservative Party leadership contender appearing to boast about deliberately moving funding away from deprived urban areas of the U.K. while he was Chancellor of the Exchequer. Those remarks seem at odds with the Tory election pledge to level up less well-off areas of the country, including Northern England and the Midlands. Ukrainian officials are rebuking Amnesty International for a report that said Kyiv had endangered civilians with a pattern of locating military bases and weapon systems in residential areas, leaving them in the path of Russia's indiscriminate attacks. And a week after Ukraine and Russia reached an agreement for safe transit of grain vessels, three more ships left Ukrainian Black Sea ports early today, carrying corn bound for Ireland, the UK, and Turkey. And that is the latest from the news desk. Guy Johnson, back to you now in London. Thank you very much indeed, Charlie. Charlie will be back in around half an hour to update us on the headlines. While the sun may be shining outside, the picture from an economic point of view continues, it seems, to get grimmer and grimmer. Yesterday, it was the Bank of England's outlook. Today, it's bus drivers going on strike. It's port workers, as Charlie was saying, going on strike at the UK's biggest container port. The situation 
looks incredibly difficult. Yesterday, we heard from the Governor of the Bank of England. Today, we heard from the Chief Economist over at the Bank of England. We've also been hearing as well from Liz Truss and from Rishi Sunak. Let's hear what they're saying on the economy. We've had a very big, very big shock. Now is the time to be bold. Fall in real incomes, another significant deterioration in the outlook for activity in the UK. It is, of course, extremely worrying. GDP growth in the UK has slowed and the economy is now forecast to enter recession later this year. But it is not inevitable. We can change the outcome and we can make it more likely that the economy grows. We in the Conservative Party need to get real and fast. CPI inflation is now expected to peak at just over 13% in Q4. The lights on the economy are flashing red, and the root cause is inflation. Let's talk about the politics. Let's talk about the economics. Bloomberg's Joe Mays joins us now on the line. Joe, we heard from the Bank of England yesterday. The outlook is grim. We are heading for a deep recession. Liz Truss thinks that that is avoidable. How is that going down? Is there a sense that maybe the politicians and the economic experts are on such different pages right now? Yeah, I think that is the sense. And I think that Liz Truss's perspective for the economy, which is effectively, you know, immediate tax cuts, it's hard to see how that will be enough to overcome all of the things that the Bank of England is talking about, all the economic headwinds that the UK faces. And I think Rishi Sunak does seem to be taking a more realistic stance and basically saying to the electorate, this is going to be pretty bad and we have to kind of be ready for that. And there's not much we as a government will be able to do about it. That's something that Liz Truss is not really willing to say at this point because he's trying to be hope, optimism kind in terms of where we are in that process of picking the next prime minister there does seem to be a sense at the moment and i'm hearing this more today than i heard yesterday but i'm certainly hearing it louder and louder that this is a done deal that rishi sunak is out for the counts and cannot win this is there a chance actually that the bank of england in some ways has given him an opportunity maybe to turn that round a little bit that being pragmatic trying to say that he is the safe pair of hands saying that actually we need to be realistic at the moment could open the door for an opportunity here yeah and that's what rishi sunak immediately capitalized on yesterday in response to that bank of england's gloomy forecast he said look this is exactly what i've been talking about and this is why we need to have a caution approach which i advocate but i think that you're right to say that the mood very much is trust is to lose we have polls showing how you know 35 points leads over rishi sunak and it will take an enormous shift at this point for her to not become the next prime minister and as we were saying in in, in the news bulletin just then rishi sunak had a bad day today where he's come out with that video showing him effectively boasting about money going away from deprived areas a terrible look so you know it's, it, momentum is not shifting his way in the way it would need yeah. to, to win the stage. I understand why it would be perceived as a terrible look. Is it a terrible look within the Conservative Party, though? Yeah, that's a very good point, because if you're saying I'm bringing money to rural areas where Conservative Party members who are voting in this contest live, then yes, perhaps it doesn't, isn't such a bad look. But certainly, if you want to win the next election, for example, and you want to be the Prime Minister, a Tory Prime Minister who wins that next election, that's the kind of video which can get played over and over by the Labour Party. And so it does damage you to a certain extent, for sure. But you're right, there is a, there's a caveat, which is that Tory Party members might like the idea of more money coming to their areas. Where are, we, where are we in terms of the voting? Uh, I was listening to a debate, was it last night or the night before? It was last night. I kind of lose track of time at the moment. Where very few members of the, of the Conservative Party there had actually received their ballot papers. 
Yeah, so those ballot papers are still going out. So very few people will have actually cast their ballots at this point. So it is all to play for in that sense. And interestingly, in that Sky News debate, when we went to the audience who were three party members and asked, or a show of hands, who you support. Sunak came out on top by a long way, which shows that, you know, there could still be twists in this tale, but all, like, the bulk of the polling is showing trust a long way ahead, and, uh, and it, would, it would be a big shock at this point if he doesn't get, uh, get, get the top job. And are we on schedule to deliver the outcome by the end of the summer? Yes, and with the winner announced on September 5th, a new Prime Minister by September 6th, that is still the schedule with no, 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 no strong signs that would, that would change for any reason. And, and as we can, so what I'm wondering is how, how this process is going to unfold, because the, the potential for actually significant further disruption in the economy between now and then appears to be fairly enormous. The other headlines that we're seeing today are further port strikes. We're now seeing bus drivers going potentially on strike as well. Uh, junior doctors could potentially be going on strike. We are heading for a summer of turbulence. And, and I'm just wondering how events on the ground could still shape what is going to be the outcome of this debate. Yeah, I mean, one thing to say is like a, there's a tail risk possibility that Sunak might drop out of the race. He might say, look, it's so obvious I'm not winning that it would be in the best interest of the party if I sit down right now and then Liz Charles can get right on with the job. So that could happen. He's saying it won't, and I think it's unlikely, but we have to keep that in mind. In terms of how events will affect the race itself, I'm not so sure. I think this Conservative Party membership has its big thoughts about tax, has its big thoughts about defence, the big issues it cares about. And I think that uh, we're not going to see the, the kind of gravity of economic harm hitting in the next few weeks. It is more coming later into the fall. So I think that for now, this race will continue this kind of bubble where I'm always talking about tax and, and those kinds of issues and, and the cost of living and so on won't really, really have that impact until later in the year. In terms of how the Bank of England changed things, changed the narrative just actually more broadly in British politics, that I. I was expecting the Bank of England to be to be quite brutal yesterday. I wasn't expecting it to be as brutal. Now, you can play around with the numbers and you can debate whether or not the bank is being overly pessimistic. But nevertheless, if you take the bank at its word, we are heading in into an, an incredibly brutal period for the British economy, which is going to have a meaningful and long-lasting effect on living standards in the UK. How does that change British politics? Yeah, I think that... Basically, if you think about most generations alive today in the UK, they haven't lived through a period with high inflation, low growth, energy prices going through the roof as they will, potentially rationing of things like water and energy. We just simply haven't seen it. So my sense is that it's going to cause a total reckoning with British politics. And it's very bad to be the party kind of holding the parcel when the yeah. music stops. And that's going to be the Tory party, right? And we're going to have either Liz Truss or Rishi Sunak as the prime minister during that time. I think it could be exceptionally damaging. And voters, you know, won't forgive the party in power uh, when all this you know, basically comes to pass. So you'd think that that creates opportunities for the Labour Party. And so maybe the Keir Starmer message of, you know, security and I... We will be the we will be the party that will help you going forward. That, that might have some resonance. So it's going to be very very tricky for the Conservatives. Okay, but you, you you follow this more closely than I do. You're down at Westminster. You get a greater handle on what is happening here. Is this a Labour Party that is feeling that at the moment? Because judging by the headlines that I'm seeing and just the body language of the Labour leadership, I'm not getting that sense at the moment. No, you're right. Definitely not now. I think, and that's partly because the the wreck, kind of the the storm, is yet to hit economically. And in the polls, they're only really level pegging the Conservatives, which is actually a fairly poor performance in midterm. Yeah. They're to be doing better. And when I go out to the north of England and meet voters, I'm yet to hear a 
Boris Johnson voter of 2019 say, I'm really enthused by Keir Starmer, I'm coming back to Labour, more likely they say, I'm pretty disillusioned with the whole thing, Boris hasn't delivered what he said he would, therefore I'm going to not vote, for example. So it's certainly true that Labour has not really built a positive momentum behind its movement, but, you know, there's still time to go until an election and the apathy towards the Tories might become so strong during this crisis that's coming that they could perhaps be expected to, to, to sneak in on those hats. But yeah, yet to build a positive, positive movement, I think. You bring up the Prime Minister, who is still Boris Johnson, though obviously off on holiday, getting married, those kinds of things going on in his life right now. I'm starting to hear kind of a lot more talk about what Boris Johnson is going to do next and how potentially dangerous that could still be for the Conservative Party. Do we get any sense of what his plans actually are? When do you think we'll start to get an idea of what Boris does next? Um, I think it'll come up pretty fast. I mean, notably, he hasn't done anything to dissuade that movement within the Conservative Party membership who kind of want him to be on the ballot. I mean, when that's talked about at the hustings, that often gets a round of applause. So he's not doing anything to uh, kind of damp down that prospect of you know, him in some way being involved in politics. And I think that the kind of Dominic Cummings theory, which is that Boris Johnson hopes to effectively become Prime Minister once again in the hope that the next leader basically fails and there'll be a movement to get him back in. I think that has some, some credibility to it. I mean, we will find out soon enough. I mean, he may want to go back to writing columns for Telegraph, for example, to earn some money. We know his financial situation is quite tricky. So expect things like that, book writing as well. But, you know, don't, don't rule out the Boris Johnson comeback for sure. Joe, we're going to leave you there. Great stuff. Thank you very much indeed, Joe Mays, on what is happening with UK politics. Uh, An amazing 24 hours in the UK. Uh, The sense of impending doom starting to really gain some traction at the moment. The economic data is not good. Uh, And the interesting compare and contrast is really with the United States right now. It's not with what is happening in the rest of Europe. The data out of the States continues to be really very, very strong. The US may be heading towards a recession, but it doesn't feel after today's numbers, to be an imminent risk. The UK on a very different page, uh, and that is certainly starting to show up. The pound weakening strongly today uh, against the US dollar. The euro weakening strongly as well. We're going to carry on the conversation next, talk more about what is happening uh, around the world. Clearly that data absolutely front and centre. We've got other risks that we need to manage as well, and we're going to talk about that throughout the rest of the show as well. We're going to be talking about Taiwan a little bit later on. Some massive Chinese military drills taking place over the last 24 hours. Financial markets appear to have largely ignored them. They're not looking uh, at that risk as well. And the other one as well that we need to be factoring into the mix as well is what is happening on the virus front not covid monkeypox the u.s is now declaring an emergency on monkeypox the numbers are really beginning to grow quite substantially what does that shift in policy mean over in the united states in terms of fighting back and what is the long-term trajectory in our battle with money monkeypox how much more significant a risk could it become we'll try and address that question next this is bloomberg This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. While today we've seen very strong labour market data in the United States, 
giving a boost to that economy. There are many, many risks on the horizon. We're going to talk about what is happening in Taiwan a little bit later on in the program. But we've also got a health crisis that is unfolding around the world in the form of monkeypox. The US has now declared monkeypox a health emergency. What is the significance of this and how bad is it? Lisa Jarvis joins us now on the line to discuss. Lisa, why has it taken so long to declare an emergency and what impact will that declaration have? Hi, thank you. Um, I think it's taken so long because there's been confusion over whether this could be contained, maybe hope. Um, But the impact at this point is more resources, more money, and now it seems like a better plan for running trials, getting vaccines, um, extending the supply of vaccines that we have, and in general, trying to improve upon the messaging about how well uh, our test um, drugs and vaccines work. How bad is it? Well, in the U.S., we now have over 7,100 cases. That's been growing exponentially, it feels like. Um, And one thing that's very difficult is that we just don't know um, if that will continue. It seems like um, the growth uh, is going to continue because we don't know how well the treatments work. We don't know how well the vaccines work. We don't have enough vaccines to give to everyone who needs them. In the U.S., the population that is at highest is at risk is something around 1.7 million people because the right now the virus is primarily circulating among the community of men who have sex with men. But we do not have enough vaccine doses to um, give to all of those folks. And that seems to be the primary strategy for containment right now. What can we do to improve the availability of vaccines, what can be done to improve the availability of vaccines. Uh, I read something earlier suggesting that that maybe we're looking at new ways uh, of actually getting more out of current vaccine vials and new ways of injecting them. Different techniques may be being used uh, to spread it out a little bit more. That's right. So yesterday the FDA said that they are exploring, and it seems possible, likely that they're going to do this, um, intradermal um, injection. So what that is, is it's like a little pocket underneath your skin instead of subcutaneous um, injection, which is how the vaccine was previously given. We know from other diseases like yellow fever um, that that mode of administration elicits a better immune response. And so what FDA thinks is that they could stretch a single vial of vaccine, which has one dose, to have five doses. What they're going to do is run a trial. Um, I think they'll probably start rolling that out while also running a trial to study um, how well that actually works um, to protect people from monkeypox. How does the U.S. compare with others? How does the US, U.S. compare with Europe in terms of A, kind of how many cases it's seeing, and B, the way that it's responding? On a per capita basis, we're um, not as high as some countries in Europe, but of course the outbreak started there, seemed to, seemed to start there. <laughs> um, you know, and so we're a little behind, um, though we're catching up quickly, unfortunately. Um, and so, you know, I think our strategies are similar, but one thing that's different is that, you know, we don't have the same kind of uh, public health system in place that allows us to easily track what's happening with patients to understand things like how well. Uh, the drugs that we have to treat, the drug that we have to treat monkeypox works or, um, you know, how well people are doing after they're vaccinated to understand if, is anyone getting a breakthrough infection, for for example. So it just, it, it, the cracks in our public health system are really showing um, much like they did during COVID. And are we seeing any evolution of the, uh, of the virus? One of the big sort of concerns, uh, continues to be the big concern around COVID, 
is ongoing um, um, variations um, w- and the ability of the virus to evade. This is clearly a very different kind of virus with a very different propensity to do that. But nevertheless, is there a danger here that this evolves, that this becomes a wider problem? I think anytime you allow a virus to circulate um, and give it lots of opportunities to spread, that creates more opportunities for it to mutate. Um, however, um, as you mentioned, it is, it's a DNA virus, whereas uh, the coronavirus is an RNA virus. And so that means it's a little, it's much more stable. Um, early on, there's been analysis of, you know, the initial infections, and it looks like there are some differences between what we've seen in, in the past in the viral genome. But so far, we haven't seen anything that has made us feel alarmed. But you know, you don't want to let it get out of control because, again, as we've seen with COVID, when a virus has, you know, every opportunity it wants to infect folks, it will change and get better at that. And is the summer worse than the winter? I, I'm just wondering if there's a seasonal effect. I don't think so because of the mode of transition, transmission, unlike COVID, which is a respiratory virus. And so it has more opportunities to spread when we all go inside and are breathing on each other, breathing the same air. Um, Monkeypox right now is really primarily... Um, being transmitted through skin-to-skin contact, through sexual contact, intimate contact. And so, you know, that's, that's a year-round thing. Okay. Great stuff. Lisa, thank you very much indeed for the update. Uh, we really greatly appreciate it. Uh, we'll continue to keep an eye on what is happening here, but it does seem finally as if we are seeing uh, maybe the politicians and the health leaders uh, taking action, which may start to spray, slow things down a bit uh, and maybe improve the uh, the opportunity to use the vaccines that we have thus far. Um, up next, we're going to talk more about what is happening uh, with the U.S. economy. We're going to hear from the U.S. Treasury Secretary Marty Walsh, my good friend and colleague, uh, John Farrow, spoke to him a little bit earlier on. Uh, In some ways, a good day for the administration, but a bad day for the Federal Reserve. The U.S. continues to produce huge numbers of jobs at the moment. Uh, This is certainly going to put pay to the idea uh, that we are seeing an imminent recession in the United States, which there has been so much debate about. Uh, We're going to be joined next by Bloomberg Economics Anna Wong to give us a sense uh, of what this means in terms of policy formulation from here. How is the Fed going to have to react? The spread, the swaps market is now pricing in the fact that we are going to see a 75 basis point hike uh, from the Federal Reserve in September. Are we going to need to see more? Is 75 going to be enough? I've spoken to one economist, at least today, uh, that is pointing us in the direction of the possibility uh, of the market beginning to move onto the footing of maybe 100 basis points being back on the table. We will debate that next. As I say, very strong number. We'll hear from the Labour Secretary next. And after that, analysis from Anna Wong. That's next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio, Friday, August the 5th, 5.30 in the city of London this Friday night. It's a lovely evening out there. A fantastic weekend coming up. We've got plenty of problems that we need to be dealing with, figuring out, working our way through. We're going to talk about that. Uh, over the next half hour. We're going to talk about what's happening in the U.S. economy uh, and a little later on in the hour as well. We'll talk about what's happening uh, over in Asia, in China in particular, uh, the Taiwan Straits, a huge focus of attention right now. Uh, We'll do that in around 20 minutes' time with Ros Matheson. First, though, let's talk about what is happening with these markets. Equity markets in the States 
beginning to roll over a little bit again. So the Nasdaq's down by around nine tenths of one percent. The S and P five hundred down by around six tenths of one percent. The FTSE one hundred closing down by one tenth of one percent today. The real focus has been on this sizzling U.S. labour market, and as a result of which, the action has been largely, I think, in the bond market today. In terms of the ten-year action, uh, you've seen sixteen basis points being added to a U.S. ten-year. But actually, I think the front end of the curve is where the real story is. There, the U.S. two-year, uh, which is much more reflective of where Fed's, uh, Fed rates are going, up by 20 basis points today. And what that has done is further invert the U.S. curve, i.e. front-end rates uh, are higher than long-end rates. That signals, in theory, a recession. But when that recession comes uh, is a really open question. And we're going to be debating that with Anna Wong very, very shortly. We're also going to hear uh, from the U.S. Labor Secretary, Marty Walsh, a conversation uh, with John Farrow a little bit earlier on is really worth taking a listen to. So that's kind of laying out the stall. That's what we're going to be discussing, the risks uh, that we're facing right now. Let's get some headlines and pull it all together with Charlie Powell. Hi, thank you very much, Guy Johnson. Lots of cross-currents, lots of topics to talk about, and also, of course, energy. Benchmark power prices in Europe hit fresh records today as utilities are increasingly reducing electricity output in Western Europe because of the hot weather. Next year, contracts in Germany and France, Europe's biggest economies, rose to new highs after Switzerland's Expo Holding announced curbs at one of its nuclear plants. And Electricity de France also is reducing nuclear output because of cooling water restrictions, while Uniper in Germany is struggling to get enough coal up the river Rhine. Water liver, uh, rivers, uh, water, water levels on the Rhine have fallen so low that the river may effectively close soon, impacting supplies of coal to the plants next to it. And Norway, one of Europe's biggest electricity exporters, is considering measures to limit power shipments to prevent domestic shortages amid surging prices. Flows on the cables are regulated by deals with both the European Union and the UK, and Norway cannot simply cut power. And that blowout American jobs report for July means the Federal Reserve will probably need to keep going with the most aggressive rate hikes in decades to curb demand and inflation, according to economists. That is the latest from the news desk. Have a great weekend. Guy Johnson, back to you now in London. You too, Charlie Pellet. Thank you very much indeed. Always appreciate Charlie's input. As he says, the Fed now priced for a 75 basis point hike in September. We've got a lot of data to get through between now and then. We get CPI uh, next week. But today's data was absolutely stellar. A blowout U.S. jobs report for July means basically the Federal Reserve will have to keep going. The market economists were expecting 250,000 jobs to be added. We got 528, more than double what was anticipated. The unemployment rate fell to a five-decade low and wage growth continued to accelerate. It was a real jolt for the market and, I suspect, the Federal Reserve. The Fed is going to find this data very disappointing. The action it's taken thus far is not working. But for the administration in Washington, the Biden administration, this is very good news. Earlier, my good friend and colleague John Farrow caught up with the U.S. Labour Secretary Marty Walsh. 
this certainly is a great jobs report. When you look at the different sectors, uh, most of the economy has recovered. The jobs that were uh, that companies had pre-pandemic are all returned, so it shows good gains. Uh, we've shown some good wage growth. We've shown good good areas. Manufacturing is one of those areas that certainly we've seen come back, not just come back to pre-pandemic levels, but go beyond that. Uh, I think with the CHIPS bill that was passed and, and signed, it's going to be signed into law next week, uh, we can do more manufacturing in the United States of America, which in the long term will help us with some of the inflationary pressures such as semiconductors and, and more microchips. Secretary Walsh, what a turnaround this has been since the pandemic. Can we just take a moment to think about that, how much we've recovered over the last couple of years? And can you talk to me about how sustainable you think these jobs gains might be? Well, I'll tell you, uh, pandemic, March of 2020, I was the mayor of Boston and we were shutting businesses down. We we're shutting retail, uh, restaurants down. Uh, it, we, we didn't really know what the economy held. And thinking about where we are today was really incredible. And I think that this will, in my opinion, will be sustainable moving forward. I think companies are understanding. I think we're going to have a new type of economy. I think we're still obviously dealing with inflationary pressures. You talked about it right before we got on, on the air here. I heard you talking. And I think that, you know, we're going to adapt and adjust and we're going to move forward. I think that the infrastructure infrastructure law that was, was signed into law. We're going to see more investments all across America on roads and bridges. I think with the CHIPS bill that, that was passed and move forward, we're going to see more investment in manufacturing. Hopefully, uh, the bill that's being worked on now in front of the Senate is going to be working on prescription drug costs and, and environmental climate change and, and some other areas is going to help. When you really think about a lot of what's happened here under the Biden administration uh, is something that we've talked about for the last decade or so. Uh, and these are all going to be good bills and good investments to move our economy and quite honestly, move America forward. I know you've got a lot of people to talk to this morning. I did want to talk to you about the negotiations on the West Coast with the yeah. ports. This I was, was going to bring quote. it up. I know you are, because this was your quote last time we spoke. You said, next month, I come on the, if I come on this show, if we don't have a contract and we're not close to a contract, then you and I might be having a very different conversation. So I guess, do we have one? Are we close to one? Or are we no, having a very different conversation? No, we're not, we're, I don't know how close we are to getting the contract, but one thing that, that has happened in, since we've spoken and both sides have agreed is the health care. And that was a big sticking point. That's usually a big sticking point, the cost around health care and who's going to pay for health care. And, and that was negotiated and solved about 10 days ago. So I'm very pleased with that. Now they're on to the next phase of negotiation. Uh, and usually when you think about contracts and negotiation, the biggest sticking point is around health care, pensions, things like that. And, and those are in the rearview mirror now. now. Now they're moving forward on some of the other issues that they want to tackle. So I feel good where we are. Uh, I, I, if I said that, I, I probably should have used my words a little better if we don't have a contract by next month. But I certainly, I, I am very confident where we are in the negotiation right now. I am not concerned. Uh, and I stay in very close contact with both the, the, the Longshoremen Union and the companies on the ports to, to offer any type of support we need. But every time I talk to them, they say we're moving forward. Marty Walsh, the U.S. Labor Secretary, speaking from Washington, D.C. a little bit earlier on to my good friend and colleague, John Farrow. Let's push forward. We have just had an incredibly strong number. Where is it going to take us? Let's try and answer that question. Anna Wong is Bloomberg's chief U.S. economist. She's worked at the Fed. She's worked at the White House. She's worked at the U.S. Treasury. She knows what is happening on the ground with the U.S. economy right now. Anna, this is an incredibly strong number. What does it mean for policy? Yeah, so um, first, it settles the question. We are not in a recession right now. Uh, so forget about a dovish a Fed pivot. Second, there's nothing good in this report for the Fed. There's no evidence to suggest that industries hiring are slowing in even interest rate-sensitive sectors like construction. So 
So this means that the Fed has to do more. And um, how, much more, more? That, how much more? How much more? Well, <laughs> I think this bolsters our case that the terminal rate for this hiking cycle would likely be higher than, much higher than what the market currently has priced in. Our view is that it will get to 5% terminal mm. rate. And part of this is the, the reason why we think it will be this high is that I mean, it's very clear in this report that wage growth has not slowed down. If anything, it has accelerated, re-accelerated. And that, you know, three months ago, economists, including ourselves, were thinking that wage growth has moderated. It has not. Uh, the reason why it has not is that we actually had bad data three months ago, and now those errors have been revised away. The true picture is that it, wage growth has re-accelerated. Now, that means that even as we see oil prices come down, commodity prices come down, they may even come down further because China is weakening. Uh, we still have the second leg of inflation, which is wage growth, cost push kind of inflation that will persist even long after, you know, furniture prices come down. So I think this means that uh, prices, inflation, would likely be sticky around 4% at the end of next year. So still doubled the, the, the price target of the Fed. This means that the Fed will have to keep that uh, uh, rate high. Yep. And our, our thinking is that it's 5%. And then only is the, they will be able to cut in 2024. So I've been talking to a lot of people and they all believe that, yes, we probably are going to get a recession. And yes, it's going to be caused by the Fed. But but as you say, most people are expecting the Fed to have to go to 36 3.8, 4% tops. And as a result of which, we're only going to see a mild recession. Under your scenario, what kind of a recession do you think we ultimately have to get in order to bring inflation under control? Yeah, so I think absolutely we will need a recession to get a series, a string of report that shows decelerating core CPI. And whether it, it's a mild or a steep one it depends on your definition of steep. So looking at history, the, the deepest cumulative GDP contractions in terms of recessions are also the recessions that's the longest. And it seems like there is a market consensus here that people think this recession is going to be a long one because the Fed is going to keep the rates high or they, they won't be easing as soon as in previous recessions. If that's what they think, they should also be thinking that the cumulative GDP contraction would be one of the large. So in that sense, it would be deep. But I think most people are just thinking that maybe it, on a quarterly, average quarterly basis, the contraction would not be a large contraction. Okay, that kind of makes sense. Um, why, why we, you, you talked a moment ago about the, the data three months ago being bad. Why is it so hard to call at the moment what is happening in particular in the labour market, which is so pivotal to this whole process? Coming into this number today, the central expectation was 250. We got 528. Yeah, I mean, you know, data get revised um, all the time. And during the pandemic, 
these revisions became larger and larger. And even looking at the non-farm payrolls monthly number, the last whole year, uh, the real-time numbers have understated the true tightness of the labor market. And we are seeing that happen to wage growth. And uh, it's unfortunate because in the 1970s, a similar thing happened under when Arthur Burns was the Fed chairman that, yeah. you know, data got revised and they judged that productivity was actually stronger than what it actually is. And similarly, in 2001, in that re- recession, economists totally missed that recession until six months after that the recession has actually began. And the culprit, again, is that the data in real time was not accurate and they got revised back. So these things happen. The Burns era did end particularly well um let's talk a little bit about next week cpi if we if we get a hot labor market does that imply that actually the inflationary impulse within the u.s economy is still probably fairly hot as well yeah, so the, I think people uh, people in the market will be happy with the CPI report next week because it will be a very soft number. We're thinking headline would be only at 0.2% month, month on month, and the year-over-year year would be at 8.7%. down the from the core? would be... I mean, core, we think it will be 0.5 uh, monthly, which is still rather high, so that's the issue here. Yes, that headline would be soft, but core will continue to be kind of sturdy because of these the wage growth that I was talking about that that it's been very it's been reaccelerating in recent months. Yeah, and that so so that takes me to the kind of this idea that we we've had sort of headline inflation being relatively elevated. It's being driven by energy and various other factors, which are starting to abate. But as you highlighted earlier on in this conversation, are we now in the position where, we, where we're starting to get into the so-called famous second round effects, where the inflationary impulse starts to spread out and becomes therefore much harder to deal with? Yeah, I, I think so. So I think the, the challenge for the Fed is that maybe somewhere in the, in the first half of next year, headline inflation on a year-on-year basis will come down sharply, and they could be seduced into pausing the rate hikes yeah. or even cutting, but then core inflation will be persistently high and stuck around 4 or 5%. And if they relax, then it will keep reaccelerating in the future. Anna, always great to catch up. Thank you so much for your analysis. We always appreciate it on a day-by-day basis. Anna Wong, the chief U.S. economist here at Bloomberg. Uh, up next, we're going to turn our attention away from economics towards geopolitics. What is happening in Taiwan? How bad can it get? That's next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. China has chosen to overreact and use Speaker Pelosi's visit as a pretext to increase provocative military activity in and around the Taiwan Strait. Anthony Blinken, the U.S. Secretary of State, speaking a little bit earlier on what is happening in Taiwan right now, what is happening in the Taiwan Strait, what is happening in response to House Speaker Nancy's Pelosi's, Nancy Pelosi's trip to the island a little bit earlier on this week. We have now seen, continue to see, the response from China. We have seen Nancy Pelosi herself and her family uh, being sanctioned. Uh, We are seeing the Chinese withdrawing from key areas of cooperation with the United States, including, critically, climate 
but also including other areas, uh, including economic uh, and military cooperation. We are seeing uh, seeing a series of war drills being conducted. Uh, We are seeing ships and fighter jets crossing the median line between China uh, and Taiwan. Uh, And we have had reports the ballistic missiles have been fired over with their flight path over Taiwan, a significant escalation. Today, we focus mainly on what is happening with the US economy and the payrolls data. Are we missing what is crucially happening on the opposite side of the world and the impact that this geopolitical deterioration could have globally on the economy? Joining us now to discuss all of this is Bloomberg's Ros Matheson. Ros, can you just put in context what we are seeing today? How significant is the Chinese response? Well, as you were just saying, China has continued with its military build-up and its drills around the island of Taiwan. They had said they were going to continue these drills through the weekend, and they're certainly making good on that. And if anything, they're actually escalating their military behaviour around Taiwan, sending waves of aeroplanes across what's called the mid-turn line, which is sort of the US-defined boundary in the Taiwanese Strait. That's record numbers, really, of warplanes doing that, warships in the area, having, as as you said yesterday, fired missiles over Taiwan for the first time uh, in in living memory. And so all of this is adding up alongside the trade penalties, alongside the withdrawal from a bunch of dialogues they were holding with the U.S. as a a fairly significant package of retribution. The question is, is this something that's going to sustain or is this something that China is using in the short term to send a message and then quietly some of this will diffuse itself again? Well, let's talk about that message. Who is the message to? Is it to its opposition, the United States, Taiwan and others? Or is it to the domestic population who were promised a significant response were Pelosi to travel to the island and are now looking to see that delivered upon? Well, it's probably a combination of those things. Uh, China, of course, wants to send a strong message to the U.S. because what it doesn't want to see is is sort of a a continued presence of the U.S. military, the Navy, in that strait and certainly in its periphery in general. So the message is those waters, we're going to keep policing them, we're going to be there, we're going to fly planes there, and we're going to sort of try and push the U.S. uh, back and also, of course, Taiwan and, and other countries in the area, but it's also a message, of course, to the domestic people uh, of China. As you know, Xi Jinping is heading towards a period where he's going to be re-endorsed as president for another term. He can't afford to be seen to be weak. China has protested this most loudly. Now he must show that he's acting. Uh, and of course, he's made Taiwan a central part of the Communist Party's hold on power. His pledge that he said he will one day unify China with Taiwan. Of course, he sees Taiwan as part of Chinese territory, even though the island is self-governing and a democracy. So he's really staked his legacy on that. And so he now needs to be seen for the Chinese people to be acting on it. How far does he need to go to deliver upon that? Military exercises can often be a prelude uh, to to more um, aggressive action. Is that what we're seeing here? Is there a risk that that is what we're seeing here? Well, certainly we could be in for a period of sustained tension because he does need to show for a period that he's really responding uh, to the visit by the U.S. House Speaker this week. Uh, and longer term, he needs to show again that he's ch- 
changing the narrative, really, in the Taiwan Strait. Does he want war? Probably not uh, at this point in time. It's not really in the interest of China, Taiwan or the US to have a full-blown conflict over this. Um, and this is not the moment, perhaps, to be doing that because he is in those months where he needs to be able to get re-endorsed as leader. If you have a messy conflict that backfires on him, that's going to put that in some danger. In the longer term, is it probably still his goal to do that? Yes. But it's hard to say if that's over, you know, a five or a ten-year or even a further uh, timeline than that, but certainly in the longer-term horizon. What is going to be the the longer-term effect of what we're seeing here if it doesn't escalate into something further? further? I'm interested in particular about what Japan makes of all of this. Well, certainly you can see that this has brought Japan into the fray because they say that some, that some of these missiles fell into their exclusive economic zone. And Japan has been much more vocal in recent months, especially under the administration of Fumio Kishida, uh, being quite supportive of Taiwan publicly, something Japan had always been very careful about doing because they don't want to antagonize China um, economically, militarily themselves. But they've been much more vocally supportive of Taiwan uh, and in public. And so this is really potentially going to draw them in further. And, of course, they're, they're a key ally of the U.S. in that region. So you could have a situation where you have China-Japan tensions escalating because of this um, as a proxy for the U.S., and that's really going to keep that region in a high state of tension for an extended period. What we are learning at the moment is uh, a great deal about Chinese military capability, Taiwanese military capability and US military capability. Is this likely to lead to significantly greater military spending, particularly by the United States, as it looks at what is happening in this region? We could argue that a a combination of things may lead to an increase uh, in U.S. defense spending, uh, including Russia's invasion of Ukraine, because the U.S. has sent a huge array of of weaponry into Ukraine, missiles, uh, long-range missiles, artillery, tanks, you name it. And they have to actually replenish those sources themselves. They've sent so much stuff over there. So you can imagine they're going to have to increase their spending in simply to, to build their own arsenal back again. But certainly the message is that the U.S. needs to be focusing its defence spending on the high end. That's Navy, that's airplanes and so on. Roz, it's always great to catch up. Thank you very much indeed for the analysis. We always appreciate it. Bloomberg's Roz Matheson on what is happening in and around Taiwan. That wraps things up. The focus next week, very much the inflation data that we're going to see from around the world. Have a great weekend. This is Bloomberg.